0: Section 1 of G. K. Chesterton's Newspaper Columns, The New Witness, 1922. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Arden. G. K. Chesterton's Newspaper Columns, The New Witness, 1922. By G. K. Chesterton. How the Liberator Liberates. By G. K. Chesterton. Being myself a modern journalist, I have seen enough of modern journalism to know, or even to guess, that masses of the most monstrous lies are told against the Bolshevists. I have seen such stuff written about the Boers in what I thought an unjust war, and about the Germans in what I thought a just one. I assume it, and I allow for it. And obviously the best corrective of what is said by capitalists about Bolshevists is to be found by simply studying what is said by Bolshevists about Bolshevists. Bolshevist propaganda, Also, will doubtless abound in lies, but at least their lies are not likely to be slanders against themselves. If I take all my criticisms of this new Semitic socialism from what the socialists themselves say, I shall be as fair as I can to them, and a great deal fairer than they are to other people. I take in my hand as a concrete object the highly colored American magazine devoted to defending the policy of Lenin and Trotsky, the Liberator. Even considered as a highly colored work of art, It has many minor points of interest. It is supposed to be a protest from the proletariat. But I should be a little interested to know what most proletarians would make of its formless futurist illustrations, with their flattened faces and crippled figures. The poetry also has a popular appeal of a peculiar kind. The following lines, for instance, appear under the name of Passion Death This morning, low, sad eye black, upon rock, with glossy neck, sea was blue with silk, suddenly, three times croak broke out of me, sky was white as milk. With this croak-running thrill, ran through body, like chill, that body black as silk. Suddenly, chest split crimson out of me, heart fell white as milk. Now it would be easy to offer criticisms of this poem from the standpoint of the pedantic and exclusive scholar. It might be asked whether it was the rock that had a glossy neck, or the man, if it was a man, it might be pondered whether he was a Mr. Black, or a black man, or possibly a blackbird or a black beetle. The academic critic might affect perplexity over something that was blue as silk, which seems like saying it was as green as chalk or as pink as paint. In the poem as a whole, indeed, silk seems to be of an accommodating colour, and to proceed rather from the chameleon than the silkworm. We may generally conclude that the thing, whatever it was, was as blue as black silk And as black as blue silk. Dull grammarians might ask what it was exactly that ran through the body like a chill. Unless the body ran through itself, and even when all these riddles of style and syntax were resolved, it would seem somehow as if the upshot, the main happening, or what the conventional call the story, somehow managed still to elude the mind. But all this is literary, logical, or grammatical criticism, and cannot affect the popular and political question, about which there can surely be no doubt. Dons and doctors of letters may carp and criticize, but if this poem were read aloud to ten dusty navvies, in a third-class carriage, we can all imagine the success of its simple appeal. We can conceive how hearty a chorus it would make for the humble tavern, and how rousing a marching song for the proletarian revolution. I can imagine a jolly chorus of laborers at the spotted dog singing three times croak broke out of me, to the tune of, three times round, when our gallant, gallant ship. I can imagine a host of workmen and peasants in arms chanting aloud that their chests split crimson out of them with the same simple hardiness as the old peasant revolutionists saying that the foul blood of tyrants should flow in their furrows. I have taken this remarkable poem at random, as representing one side of the popular appeal, but if Bolshevist poetry is perhaps a little subtle, it is only fair to say The Bolshevist prose is admirably sincere and plain. And while Bolshevist poetry is perhaps a little withdrawn from democracy, Bolshevist prose is quite definitely and dogmatically against democracy. It is against democracy in the final and fundamental sense in which we are for democracy. Indeed, we could not ask a fairer or clearer statement of the real difference in issue for decision as we have always presented it than the following lines which are printed in the Liberator in large letters like a proclamation. The Russian peasants want their small pieces of land. Oppose communal, large-scale production. They wanted free trading, which enabled them to sell their products. Petty business is still their ideal. The Soviet government discovered it was impossible to imbue them with the aims of socialism by intensive education. It has changed its tactics. It has made trading legal and tells the peasants they may sell all they produce above their own needs in a specified amount for the government. This means food will come out of hiding, that the peasants will produce abundantly but they will become even more petit-bourgeois. On the other hand, the Soviet government proposes to inaugurate the most modern large-scale production, state socialism, under government control and management. It proposes to permit capitalists under short-time government concessions to establish large-scale modern production in certain branches of industry. These monopolies will drive the peasants out of small productive methods and into communal production, giving them more social vision and preparing them as well as industry, for socialism. The capital letters for the highly democratic word drive are not mine but theirs. Then follows this final and interesting pronouncement on democracy itself. You cannot educate or persuade the mass of people into new ways, but you can cut the economic ground from under their feet and throw them into the ranks of the proletariat. The capitalist newspapers call this capitalism. We call it a brilliant understanding of economic determinism. I call it the oppression of the poor and a Jew moneylender's mad hatred of the people and all popular things, but let us put aside our personal definitions for the moment and consider the cold facts. It may be a brilliant understanding of economic determinism. There is no doubt, whatever, that it is capitalism. As a matter of fact, capitalism was itself completely founded on economic determinism. It was one of its many points of resemblance to the New Socialism. All the old capitalists also used to announce their intention to drive out all peasants by the iron laws of economic determinism. Capitalism always said that the small man must go, because Rockefeller would drive him out, and the Bolshevists admit that they are using Rockefeller to do it. They themselves call him a capitalist, they themselves call him a monopolist, and they themselves admit that he is called in not to help the people, but to ruin them. They are not only avowedly establishing capitalism, But avowedly establishing it to do all the harm that capitalism has ever done. Capitalism is to be artificially established in order to reduce people to the proletarian condition, from which socialism was established to rescue them. It is to cut the economic ground from under the poor man's feet, the whole barbarity of swindling and sweating and freezing out that moved them in their youth, to revolt against the great economic crime in whose shadow we live. And I ask them, if they ever heard from the coarsest and most corrupt capitalist, from any boor in a rich club or bully in a trade dispute, anything more brazenly oppressive, more brutally ungenerous, more full of the foulest self-confidence of the commercial roadhog, than the words in which that socialist manifesto talks of driving out peasants by the power of monopolists or cutting economic ground from under the feet of the poor. If anything were required to show up the shameless economic tyranny thus trumpeted abroad, It would be the amusing abruptness and awkwardness with which one phrase is hastily inserted to indicate uplift and to please the highbrows. Giving them more social vision, snivels the monopolist, very much as the Johannesburg millionaire talks about teaching the niggers the dignity of labor. It is an understatement to say that there is no difference between the social visionary and the Johannesburg millionaire, for he positively boasts that he is going to use all the methods of the millionaire, And very probably the individual millionaire himself. The Bolshevists' enemies used to say that they employed Chinese executioners. It is more to the point that they are at one with the landlords in employing the principle of Chinese labor. They use capitalist methods of that color to undercut the peasants, exactly as the others, exactly as that pleasing practical joke is performed by the sweating employer or the rack-renting landlord in a slum. It is unnecessary for anyone holding our own views To add anything to the paragraph quoted, the proclamation of the propaganda of the liberator might almost be reprinted, as it stands and circulated as a proclamation of propaganda for the new witness. Everything is admitted there with an almost touching simplicity. The failure of Bolshevism to impress the distributist, the revenge that is to be taken on him by the help of the capitalist, the admission that small property satisfies its possessors, the admission that the denial of distributivism is the denial of democracy. But there are many perfectly good and sincere revolutionists who do not admit the distributive theory of the New Witness policy. There are many who come of the strict tradition ennobled by the personality of Heinemann. There are some who react into a sort of romantic Bolshevism like Conrad Noel. There are some who still believe even in the pure Fabianism of Bernard Shaw. Wherever they are, and from whatever detached or even deserted outposts flying the red flag, I confidently placed the above paragraph before them. I asked them to remember the callous insolence of capitalism, the hateful complacency and sophistry that used economic laws like wheels to break men like sticks, used them to cut down the wages of the natives. They used the same methods. I do not see any reason why they should not use the same men. Many a South African plutocrat, Who has begun by putting Chinese labourers in compounds and English strikers in prison, may end up in the congenial function of breaking the backs of the poor man of Russia till they crawl to him for a wage. For anybody with anything like common sense will by this time have formed his conclusions about this social vision, this brilliant understanding of economic determinism. The story seems to be a very simple one a gang of ordinary Jewish capitalists first destroyed all rival capitalists by pretending to be communists and then went on to destroy small proprietors by avowing themselves capitalists once more. What is rather startling, and perhaps rather refreshing, is the fullness and frankness of the avowal. End of section one. Recording by Arden.